Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live. I'm your host, Tony Duke, and I'm pleased to be joining you from my professional home at Rutgers University. We broadcast on the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune in to Student Affairs Live along with my brilliant friend and co-host, Heather Shea Gasser, Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, I highly recommend you check out and favorite the archive link that we are tweeting out now. We're proud to have covered over 100 important topics with over 200 of the very top practitioners, scholars, leaders, and experts in the field. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our guests, but we can't do that without first giving a shout out to the sponsors that make Student Alive uh, possible. Hired Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing communication firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. M. Stoner is offering a free webinar on analytics for digital storytelling on September 28th. Analytics provide us with vital information to track and measure audience behavior so we can extend the reach and impact of our storytelling efforts across all our communication channels. What do you measure and how do you use that data to refine your story? Join M. Stoner for this webinar to get your analytics game on. Registration is free and we're tweeting out that link shortly where you can sign up. ACPA, College Student Educators International, is pleased to provide support for Student Affairs Live one of the many ways you can be innovative with your own professional development. Visit myacpa.org to discover the next way to engage with your own personal and professional development. ACPA provides a special institute just for mid-level managers, which one of our guests will talk about later on. Registration is now open for the January program. Visit, again, myacpa.org and register today. Now I want to take a moment to thank Kate Zulo and Robin Janice who are in the studio with me today monitoring the back channel and forwarding me your best content and questions from the Twitterverse. Now finally, I'm very honored to have join me today Dr. Maureen Wilson, Dr. Mamta Akapati, and Dr. Nikki Damania. I'd like to start us all off by having you each briefly share your current school, your role, and why this topic is so near and dear to you. So let's start uh, on my left, on my screen, with Nikki. Thank you, Tony. My name is Nikki Damani. I'm the Director of Student Life at Bakersfield College in California. My role here is to work with our student government, activities, organizations, our pantry program. I chair our Students of Concerns team, as well as do all things related with student conduct. Mid-Levels is quite dear to my heart. Not only am I the chair for the ACPA's Mid-Level Community of Practice, I also was one of the members who helped develop this program within ACPA. Being in its third year at ACPA, it has grown massively with the amount of professional development opportunities that we do provide our members and the discussions that we have within our own practice of community. This is a great uh, area to be in because quite a bit of our field and according to the last survey that ACPA did about 42 percent will completely quote me on that was mid-level and so that is a huge area within our field that we address within mid-level community of practice. Excellent. Mamta? Um, hi my name is Mamta Akapati and uh, I serve as the Vice President for Student Affairs at Rollins College I was very excited to participate in this conversation, and um, here's why. I, I think, you know, when you think about mid-level professionals, um, in our field, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where the mission of all of our institutions, not just student affairs, but the mission 
alignment and um, deployment of our institutional missions comes alive. It comes alive because of our colleagues that are that are um, in in this particular category of professionals. Um, I so I think of I think of um, mid-level professionals as the bedrock of our culture, um, and I think how we care for and support, elevate and uplift. Um, our colleagues in this space is critical to our work, and so I'm grateful to be here. Also grateful to have you here. Maureen, you're up. Thanks for inviting me, Tony. I'm Maureen Wilson, and I'm professor and chair of the Department of Higher Education and Student Affairs at Bowling Green State University. I'm really interested in our profession and professional socialization and professional identity, and I think all those topics intersect here. I think a lot of mid-level professionals feel pressure to move up, even if that's not necessarily what they want to do. They're content in their current positions. So absolutely, we should support people who do aspire to a senior student affairs role, but not everybody does. And I think you can have a very rich and fulfilling career at the mid-level. And I think really examining ways to do that benefits our profession. Now, I, I've had a lot of discussion and debate on what cons what constitutes a mid-level professional, and certainly everyone has their opinions, and I think we tweeted out a, a question to our audience to see how they would define it, but I, I want to get a more scholarly uh, perspective on this. So, Maureen, I'm going to ask you how the literature distinguishes mid-level from new and senior-level professionals. So the literature seems pretty consistent in defining new professionals as zero to five years uh, postmasters. Senior level uh, is more typically defined by title, so either being the senior student affairs officer, such as the vice president for student affairs, or a senior student affairs officer, such as an associate vice president for student affairs, but one who has oversight over several different functional areas and so forth. So mid-levels are in between there, right? But it covers such a broad territory um, from, you know, still relatively fresh, you know, so anywhere from six to 30 or more years can, can capture mid-level. Uh, but I would certainly say that the issues that people face across the career span are going to vary a good bit. Cool. Now, Nikki, this question for, for you, you're, you're in a mid-level role right now, and a, a key challenge for mid-level professionals is often how to transition from being a specialist to leading a cross-functional team. So I'm looking for some advice and strategies on how folks can best make this transition. Yeah, that's always a good question to have, especially as individuals want to progress in their career path within the field of student affairs and higher education. One of the things that we're looking at within mid-level is how do we get more mid-levels to communicate with each other for more shared opportunities yeah. to do activities in far as far as academic research or some type of shared governance structured. So when we're looking at our institution as a whole, where are those gaps within the institution that talents could be used in? Whether it's in the curriculum base and sitting on a curriculum committee, whether it's in a safety committee, whether it's in athletics committee, branching out those opportunities so that the uh, individual gets more uh, tools under their belt and exposures to different areas within the campus environment. 
getting involved with different professional organizations, either within your specific area or within uh, ACPA as a whole, and seeking out those leadership positions, whether they're as a directorate member or a volunteer at ACPA convention. And then as mid-levels, I'd say don't be afraid to, to take on tasks from other areas and help out other areas, but making sure that we also delegate other responsibilities out to our individuals that we either supervise or mentor uh, at our fields. That will give us a little bit more of an opportunity to breathe and be able to take on other responsibilities to build that resume and to be able to get those mentors and friends who can serve as references when we do our next job search. Nice. So I, as a follow-up to that, as new professionals transition to the mid-level role, what are, what are some skills and competencies that you all see, and, and anyone can answer this, that you feel are really essential and Nikki, you've mentioned some of these in order to develop and, and best perform mid-level responsibilities. One that I think is really key is supervision uh, because it's another thing that tends to distinguish or define mid-levels is that they're typically supervising other professional staff and so the ability to do that and to do that very well I think does a lot to position people to be able to uh, be successful and also to move up if they desire that. I would have to add. Oh, go ahead. I would have to add on to that is not only just supervising but being in that mentorship role as well as leading either 360 evaluations and being able to help your staff members excel in their position and giving them those professional development opportunities that get them into their next position as well. And we mid-levels tend to play that mentoring role very well. And in order to do that is kind of giving that evaluation as well as delegating out roles and responsibilities within the areas. Another aspect I would take to that is when we are delegated um, projects is to really give that large-scale approach and finishing off the project management component from the gathering, from the implementation, to all the way down to analyzing the data once the event has occurred and being able to show your supervisor that you can take a, uh, an idea through its fruition all the way out to the ending of review and give presenting data back out to the institution. Yeah, I was um, I would add that you know the the mid-level professional is truly the nexus of the both and mm -hmm. and so when I was um, kind of reflecting on some some things I would say um, negotiating um, the tension between managing things and projects and leveraging energy and, and kind of discerning what is needed at what point in time. Um, and so being able to, to be able to negotiate um, what kind of leadership is needed in what capacity because sometimes um, depending on the work there might be a level of granularity that's expected and then there are other times where vision is expected and so being able to toggle back and forth um, and recognize what, what operating skill is needed at the moment. Great. Uh, Maureen, you recently published in the journal College Student Development an article titled Professional Identity, Career Commitment, and Career Entrenchment of Mid-Level Student Affairs Professionals. And you wrote about the relatively high turnover rate in, in student affairs as compared to other areas of higher education. So what factors did your study reveal that affect longevity in particular for mid-level professionals? 
Uh, first, I want to acknowledge my co-authors, Deb Liddell, Amy Hershey, and Kira Pesquese. Uh, this is truly a team effort, so I want to share that, share that credit. Uh, but from our review of the literature, a few different factors stood out. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, high satisfaction and high morale both correlated with longevity in the field. But there's a lot that, that we don't know. In our study, in particular, uh, career contentment seems to serve as a proxy for intent to remain in the profession. Mm -hmm. So fostering contentment uh, may foster longevity, and, and I'll elaborate on contentment uh, in a bit. Um, but then there's also the notion that uh, some turnover in an organization is desirable, right? Um, you want to bring in some new energy, some new ideas, some new, some new perspectives, uh, but you also want good opportunities for um, internal promotion, that people can see a path forward without necessarily having to pack up and move. Um, so I would say also that uh, a professional might be committed to the profession long term, but not necessarily to the institution. Now, I, I, one of our, our viewers, Monica Falkman, she wanted to clarify that it's not that we don't want to move up, but it's that there are no jobs available. Mm -hmm. So she wanted right. to know if anyone has any thoughts about that sentiment. And, and perhaps that's one of the factors, right, that folks are moving out. Well, I, I think that that's, that that's absolutely a, a part of it. Um, you know, I may want to move up, but there are a lot more entry-level positions and the funnel narrows as you go up, of course. And so I've got some thoughts uh, that we can do now or, or talk about later about opportunities that supervisors might be able to create for people who are looking to move up, but there's not necessarily a path right there. So, you know, it may be lateral transfers, it might be additional responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So there are, some, there are some other opportunities for that. There, there was a study back in 2006 by Jesse Grant that suggested that mid-level managers in particular struggle with work-life balance. So in our field, many people suggest that if you don't eat, breathe, and live your work that you're not a true professional, right? And Mamta, I know you've got an opinion on, on this topic. What do we do to improve the quality of life for middle managers, and what are some strategies uh, that we can use to, to create and employ a healthy work-life balance? Um. I have opinions. I'm going to apologize. <laughs> no, I'm not going to apologize for them, actually. Um, so um, first, um, and um, for those of my colleagues that know me, you know I've, you've heard me say this before. And for those that don't, um, here you go. Um, so I don't believe in work-life balance. Um, I think it's a patriarchal construct. Um, and that's probably another conversation for another gathering. Um, and I know that you know the alternative phrase is work-life integration. And I, I can kind of join that, that a little bit. And I mean, I'm just going to honestly and vulnerably say that I think it's our job to elevate joy and wholeness. Um, and joy and wholeness looks and feels different for different people. Um, but to get to the heart, I think, of the question that you're asking about, you know, in our field, there is this assumption that we have to live, breathe, eat, sleep, um, our work, and somehow that is 
like we we have to be our professional association famous, you know, and we have to, you know, there there are certain things that you do um, to advance our field. I, I think we are contributing to that culture, right? And so for me, before I offer advice to other people, I think about what is the culture that I'm creating at my institution or contributing to. So um, I'm going to give what might feel like basic reflections, um, but um, at at and I, I was and still managed kind of unhealthy habits in my own work, so I'm not also offering advice that I don't need to work on myself. But um, first, I, I think we need to create a culture where we're valuing wholeness. And so um, if the people that are eating, breathing, sleeping, um, and engaging in kind of, I mean, if, if imbalance is the concept, um, then... And, and then those folks are the folks being recognized or given rewards or given promotions, then we are perpetuating that culture. Um, and, and so I would just offer reflection around what does our performance infrastructure look like um, around people who are choosing to elevate healthy, grounded, whole behaviors. Um, and this is the work we do across all of the functional areas of our field, so um, we should be um, in alignment with that. Um, as it feels appropriate, and knowing that that looks and feels different for each one of us as individuals. So performance, and for me, that's what I do. I mean, that's a conversation I have with all of my colleagues. It's how are you modeling wholeness? Um, because our students are watching us as well. So there's many reasons for us to do that. Um, the second um, piece that I feel is, I, I you know, I um, it was referenced earlier, this idea of this assumption that you have to move up and on in our field. Uh, I just thought that was a really, really rich reference. And, and I want to add to that a little bit. I think um, I've seen it, in, in our, at least in our professional, all of our different professional association spaces, this idea that advancement is the goal, that goal and if you're not advancing, somehow you're mediocre, right? That's the, the kind of implied. And, and we, we need to do our best to interrupt that conversation and narrative. And, um, Satisfaction and complacence are not the same thing. So if I'm satisfied in my current role and I have created an environment where I'm learning and contributing and, and I am advancing the mission, again, of the institution, that's what we all want. And, and, and so as long as wholeness and richness and advancing the institutional mission are part of that practice, I think that's we should focus on that. And, of course, um, as professionals, we have to situate agency of one's life and story mm -hmm. with that person. Um, so I'm not going to overlay on a colleague who is a really phenomenal uh, director of student conduct um, and say, well, you know, I think it's time for you to move on. Um, if I have performance concerns, I should talk about performance concerns. And if that person has promise and they've thought about it, then we should have that conversation. But if we need functional area, solid functional area experts. I mean, there's a gift in institutional memory in that work, too. So I think we need to value the gifts and talents of people across all layers of how we serve students. I've so, also heard people articulate really well, this is my job, it's not my life. Yes. And so they do a really good job uh, at work, but they have, they have hobbies and families and a lot of things outside of work that keep them happy and, and fulfilled. So uh, their primary focus may not be on career or career advancement. But there is that opportunity for mm -hmm. a person to stay within the field at a mid-level. And as mm -hmm. Mumta was mm -hmm. saying, doing those transfers, those lateral moves that really build individuals' toolbox 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've met very many uh, mid-levels that have been in the field for more than 15, 20 years that don't say, that they get up in the morning and say they, they really love what they do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really motivates mid-levels to continue to be in the field and be at a level where they're content. They, they, they're mastering a skill set or a talent that is, as Maureen yeah. was saying, the institutional memory of that uh conference or of the institution that is valuable to the progression of the institution as a whole. So I, w- I want to follow up, Monto. Marcy Walton from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. Ohio, asks or, or states that are, are the people who are constantly doing more, and I'm guessing you'll argue uh, about this definition of doing more, mm-hmm. and, and not modeling wellness, aren't they the ones who get the promotions? Well, um, and again, yeah, it depends on how you define more. Um, so, you know, I think every institution has its own culture. So, I, you know, I, I, the first context is important. Um, and so I can speak to my institution or institutions where I have worked, and I've been really fortunate um, for the institutions where I've worked. Um, you know, uh, when, I was in, when I was a mid-level professional, kind of as defined by our conversation today, um, I worked more and a lot, and my behaviors and habits were really, really unhealthy. Um, and that caused harm to me and to other people. So I always think about that. And there are people that work and do more and don't do that, right? And so I think, uh, I think it's about, that's why I, I lean to negotiating wholeness um, rather than, like, who am I to define what's more or less for somebody else? Um, what I will say, though, is I think intention and purpose matters. So. I'm doing more to get promoted only, um, and so then the quality embedded in the more is not effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a superficial doing more because that's my checklist. This is the checklist I need to get to the next level, so I'm just following the checklist. Um, and on the flip side, I will say, you know, I'm someone who I've purposefully thought about my career. So yes, I've had a checklist, but my checklist is what is the learning that I need to do fully and thoughtfully to be able to have the skills to be at the next level, not to get to the next level. So what are you know what what are what are my learning outcomes for myself? What's my syllabus of learning in my current role? Um, and, and I think sometimes in the challenge of um, people who get promotions, I think sometimes we may not explore the depth of the more. We just look at the absolute value of the more. And so I think sitting in the depth and and being thoughtful around um, actual contribution. Um, might might help in that conversation. So I want to say, I'm going to I'm going to jump around here a little bit. I'm going to stick on this topic of of advancement. Um, Robin Janice from Rutgers here here at Rutgers University is curious to hear whether you you all feel that a doctorate is necessary these days for math advancement, particularly from mid level to a senior uh, level position, and and how what do you think about what we think is a trend of folks that are looking to get their doctorate at a much younger age uh, and don't necessarily have practical experience before they jump into that role? So uh, it depends, of course, is the answer, right? Uh, I, I do have concerns, and we talk about this a lot on our high ed admissions committee. Uh, that in, in partly I feel like at some point or another you've got to pay your dues and so you can pay those early because it, 
with a doctorate, I think, comes expectations for certain salaries and position level and, and things like that. But if you, if you go into a job search with a doctorate and not the experience to match it versus a person with extensive experience but not the degree, that, that experience uh, for a lot of positions, maybe less so with the senior student affairs position, uh, might, might win out. Um, or you get a doctorate early in your career and you might wind up at an institution that's not on your dream list, right? Because you're going to pay your dues with doctorate in hand. Um, and I think it's so wildly variable from person to person and institution to institution and position to position. I would agree with that very much, that it's it's really much of a self-motivating thing to start off, because a doctorate is a commitment. It's a time away from your, your family, your hobbies, to make sure that you're invested in your doctorate and able to give back in that way. So it is also part of education. I do feel in order to move up in the career, a terminal degree is, is needed. Uh, to help in that, but the experience does need to match what the terminal degree is showing. But when we're working in at a college environment and our students are there, it's much more beneficial to a student when they see a doctor talking with them, with a, a person with a doctorate in there. So then they're motivated to move on. I work now at a community college and I did not see the impact of what a doctorate would do until I worked here when I'm working with low-income first-generational students who whose only dreams at the time was to get an AA. Now working with them and saying AA is only the first step you need to go and get your baccalaureate to get your masters to get your doctorate then that starts opening up and then we're able to relate back so it's not just only a personal thing it's also to be that role model to our students. So Marine you, you talked in, in the, your journal article about the relationship between professional identity and career commitment. What are some of the forces that compromise professional identity? So we would define professional identity as a commitment to the values and practices of the profession uh, plus an investment of personal resources such as time and money and effort. Um, that really comes from an internalized congruence between someone's personal and professional values. So all those things come together to form a, a professional identity. And our study, as we dug into professional identity, we identified three dimensions uh, of it. So one is career contentment. Uh, so I'm satisfied with my career progression. Uh, and I have an intent to stay in the, in the field. Uh, community connection that indicates a strong commitment to one's current institution or their geographic area. Uh, a locus of con connection that's more local than cosmopolitan. There's a whole line of research on locals and cosmopolitans that I think is very interesting. Um, and then the last aspect of community connection is again an intent to remain in the area. Then the third dimension is values congruence with the profession. 
So my personal values are a good match with the espoused values of, of the field. Um, I'm intellectually curious about the profession. Uh, I'm committed to, to staying current on, on issues and advancing skills. So those are the three components of professional identity. Career commitment uh, is, refers to this motivation to work in student affairs, or another profession, of course. Um, and we examine three dimensions of career commitment. So career identity, um, and that's the importance of one's work to their sense of self and their emotional connection to it. Uh, career planning. Uh, which is uh, thought, being thoughtful about advancing one's career, having purposeful goals, um, having strategies for achieving those goals, um, all, those, uh, all those types of things. And then the third component of career commitment is career resilience. Um, and that really speaks to the flexibility and the hardiness that one has in the face of career challenges or, or setbacks. All three of those aspects of career commitment were uh, highly correlated to values congruence and career contentment dimensions of professional identity. So those things really gelled and, and melded well. Great. Now, Mamto, you, you, people talk a lot about people leading from the middle, and you and I had a conversation about this uh, a few weeks ago where you suggested that we are all indeed leading from the middle, or, or should be, regardless of the title of years of, of experience. Can you explain that thought to our viewers and give us, some, again, some concrete strategies on how we can do that, how we can manage from the middle? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, so. You know, I think about my role as uh, in the role of VP of Student Affairs at Rollins College. I report to the president of the institution. The president answers to the board of trustees. Um, the board of trustees, um, in, in many ways, answer to the alumni, you know, and, and all of the other partners, the students. I mean, the, you know, they have that care of the institution. So when you look at kind of that ecosystem, um, all of a sudden, it's not, oh, there, there's the, the senior cabinet-level student affairs officer. It's, here's someone who's in the middle of a steward of an institution's mission, right? And, and so um, we are all at varying levels or degrees in the middle. And so, and, and that's not, um, I also want to own the privilege and power that comes with being the cabinet-level student affairs officer. So I'm not suggesting that there is not uh, privilege and power conversation here as well. What I'm mm -hmm. suggesting is that we can learn from each other about how we negotiate being in the middle of answering to and mentoring uh, folks. And so when I think about um, leading from the middle, um, actually uh, Larry Roper um, has written, and, and uh, he was my former supervisor, so I learned a lot from him um, at Oregon State, but there's a two, I think it's in 2009 in the Journal of College and Character, where he's written a piece called Leading from the Middle. So I would offer that as a reference. But essentially, um, and, and I offer this because this is going to be my lifelong work, so I'm not suggesting solutions, I'm suggesting that this is work that I also um, navigate in myself, which is um, the work of centrality. And so uh, I just want to uh, take ownership of the fact that I came from multicultural affairs and particularly race-based work earlier in my career. And so I felt very strongly that I needed to take certain positions on issues and then lead from those positions. 
Now, I think it's perfectly appropriate to take positions on issues that, that as human beings, we have that right and we should be doing that. However, I think about what it would mean to lead from a central place. Um, and um, that is something that I think about because if we are in the work of the wholeness of all students, we need to lead from a place where we can be in relationship with all parties and people that are going to support all students. And that doesn't mean we take away our values, but it means how do we lead from a space where as many people can um, can live and, and learn in our communities with their dignities intact, right? If, if that's the commitment I made to going into this work. So I'm saying this as somebody who really um, was not a good example of this as an early career professional, and so, you know, from the many mistakes that I continue to make. So, um, but as we're thinking about, so if I was thinking about uh, leading from the middle, I just imagine a ladder. Um, and so I think about, you know, at the bottom of a ladder, you have this amazing perspective that you can see. As you climb up the ladder, you can see different things, right? Maybe you can see different parts. There's a, a different perspective. And of course, at any position of the ladder, there are perspectives that you have that are meaningful and important. And so how you inform people that might be at a different position of the ladder or a different, you know, it's really important that perspective and wisdom that comes from that position is really important. So how do you first honor the perspective that you bring? Not defend it, because I, and for me, I used to defend my perspective versus honoring it and saying, wow, this is the wisdom that I can bring from this place, um, and I'm, I would like to contribute that to this team. So honoring perspective. The second thing that I would say, and again, um, lots of personal work here, um, I think about the continuum of relationship, being in relationship um, and being right. And mm -hmm. so um, I think sometimes when we are, and many mid-level professionals are our functional area superstars. Um, and so sometimes, at least for me, when I used to feel disempowered, it was really important for me to show and prove that I was right. So I would quote everything you needed me to quote and, you know, have all of, all of the references <laughs> in proper APA format um, to be right. And it was important for me to be right because I thought that, that was my way of moving things forward and contributing to the community. But sometimes in being right, I might sacrifice relationships. And so what I think about in leading from the middle is what is my core value? Um, and I'm not suggesting let's be wrong all the time, but what I'm offering is what would it mean to elevate the relationship more than being right? Because if I am right, but am not in relationship with anybody, will students benefit? Will the institution benefit? Will our mission advance? Um, and so I think about that a lot. And so what I've found more and more as I continue in our profession is I find, I find less and less the need to be right in a conversation. I can always revisit a conversation because my relationships with people matter. Um, and again, it's taken me a long time to get to that place. Um, the, the, the third piece that I would say is that uh, as I engage in work, and again, I would say this across the board, I think about this as I sit at the cabinet. When I sit at the cabinet as a cabinet level student affairs officer, I can't speak from the student affairs perspective only. My work is to center the mission of the institution. And so uh, our, in our work, instead of having us and our work be the center, what does it look like for the student's experience, the student's learning, to be the center of the conversation. So decentering the conversation has, uh, is a tool that I would offer. And then finally, we're in the work of human beings. Um, and so for me, with any of these conversations, um, a social justice frame, owning the privileged identities we bring to the table, 
owning how our subordinated identities and how those identities intersect and inform our own perspective. So if, if I'm impacted because of sexism that I've experienced and I'm leading from that place, um, sexism is not a good thing. However, my leading from a place impacted by sexism rather than doing my own healing work is also probably not going to create a, an environment of health for other people. So um, thinking about the social justice conversations, again, we're human beings, so elevating humanity is a core part of our work. And how we do that and how we own um, the identities that we bring is critical. So those are the four things that I would offer. Now, Maureen, we, we've talked about the concept of, of folks choosing to, to stay in a mid-level position. And I want you to kind of expand on this concept of career entrenchment mm -hmm. and share the, the difference as you've defined it between entrapped and contented workers. Yeah. So this is a really, uh, we really enjoyed working with, with this notion in, the, in our study recently. So with career entrenchment, uh, there's an Im immobility that emerges from economic and psychological investments that make it difficult to change careers. I've put too much into this to walk away from this, this career. So uh, I feel uh, you know, I've committed time, money, effort, uh, and the losses I might incur, social status, social capital, friendships, relationships, mm -hmm. all of those things uh, might, might work to keep me in this career, and maybe I don't see good alternatives out there either. So uh, that's, that's what entrenchment uh, might look like. I think I'm entrenched. Uh, I've dedicated my whole life to this to this profession, and honestly, I don't know what I would do if somebody came and yanked me out of the chair and said, "You can't do this anymore." Um, but there are two types of entrenchment. So one is that you're entrenched and entrapped. So uh, maybe my partner has a good job that we're committed to. My kids are in good schools. I'm caring for elderly parents nearby. I'm part of a close-knit community. So moving isn't a good option for me or, or maybe for us, but I'm not happy with my career and I don't see good alternatives. So that's, that's entrapped. Um, but uh, workers can be entrenched, or in, entrenched and contented. So I'm not mobile, but I also don't want to leave this place. I'm satisfied with my career. I'm happy how things are going. Um, so entrenchment can look pretty different for different people. Cool. Nikki, this ne next one for you. We, we, and you, you talked about this earlier. Mid-level professionals in particular are or often find themselves in this, in this unique position. They're, they're trying to attend to their own professional growth and career development or advancement, but they also have a supervisory responsibility to nurture the performance and, and, and the success of those underneath them. So how can we be more intentional about mapping out this professional engagement, both for ourselves and for those that we supervise? Yeah, um, I definitely like the title of this uh, this webinar, The Unsung, unsung Heroes. Um, it really shows that the mid-levels 
are those kind of backbone kind of individuals. And one of the things I could say is like developing a professional, formal uh, professional development plan where they sit with their supervisor and figure out what is needed, where things are going, those are the opportunities where they can ask for additional duties and maybe delegate some duties out. Mm -hmm. This also gives them an opportunity to talk to their um, supervisees or mentors into figuring out where uh, their skills are and where they need to go. So as a mid-level, I can release this part of my duty and give it to another individual to help their toolbox or their toolkits and their talents be um, developed even further. And then just collaborating on various different initiatives, either institutionalized or uh, across institutions within the state, within uh, national or statewide organizations. Those are the different types of uh, engagement processes. There's always the the backline of funding and that's where you as a supervisor needs to figure out the few dollars that we have for professional development where is that going to go and who's it going to go to better uh, affect that person or that supervisee to better in uh, develop their skills and or the skills of the office or the institution as a whole we're often met in this kind of like we're between this rock and a hard place as mid-levels and it's really important for us to kind of like what we say is like manage up and understand where um, the lower, the um, our peers are coming from so that we are these kind of like gateways to make sure that um, our, our offices are, are met with uh, with the performance that is needed. Great. So we, we brought up this concept of membership. I think, Mamta, you, you brought it up earlier, and we often serve in this dual role of mentoring and, men and mentees, right? So can you speak to the importance of mentoring, and particularly as a mid-level professional, how do we go about seeking uh, appropriate mentors? So, um, you know, we all need different things. So I, for, I, I first um, think that, for me, reflexivity is really important, and so how we kind of are in a space where we're thinking about, okay, where, you know, where do I flourish? Where and how do I flourish? Where do I contribute? Where are my, where are my at least perceived gaps? And, um, and then um, the last piece um, is what am I not aware about that uh, somebody will be honest with me, um, you know, in a mentor-mentee relationship, somebody will be honest and candid with, with me about. Um, I say that because, um, it would be really awesome to have, you know, somebody who we're in relationship with that's just going to affirm everything we do. And affirmation is really, really important. Um, I personally believe in in having a, a healthy and candid um, mentorship relationship because I just feel like there's growth there, right? And and I, I think that that's what we would want for our students and with our students. And so I would offer we should student affairs ourselves is, is what I would let's use student affairs as a verb and do that um, in terms of pursuing mentor. Um, a mentorship relationship. The, the thing that I would say though is I think we often, um, I think about it like asking someone out on a date, like there's this nervousness of doing that, like oh the mentor will say no. Um, I, I would offer let that go. Um, I think most people, like most people will say yes to a request of mentorship. I would just offer that when, you, when you're engaging and in, in, um, strengthening a mentor-mentee relationship that um, 
you become the lead facilitator of that relationship. And oftentimes because you don't know um, the scope or um, experiences that your mentor is engaging in, right? So they might be, uh, if they're a peer, they might have a different set of, of things that they're working on. If they're, um, you know, a step up or a couple of steps up in, in terms of um, their level in the field, um, their time or capacity or their ability to manage that time and capacity might be different. So I would offer, like with my mentors, I schedule those times. I don't, um, but what I used to do was be afraid, oh, I'm afraid you won't have time for me, and um, oh, I know your schedule must be busy. Um, I would let that go and just offer the request, um, can I schedule a time to meet with you? Can we meet at our conferences? And be clear about your learning agenda um, from a structural place, and then be open and flexible to the learning agenda that your mentor brings. I think about mentor-mentee relationships uh, almost like yoga lineages, you know, and so think about the lineage that um, a philosophy or thinking. So when you're kind of thinking about a mentor, what kind of lineage of consciousness um, do you want um, for yourself in, in terms of how you serve students or how, you, how we are as educators? So those are kind of the elements of discernment that I use in that space. So I know we've got a few senior student affairs professionals watching in on this episode here today. So Maureen, from, from your research, what, what can senior level leaders do to influence career satisfaction for the mid-levels? I, I would love for more to have really candid conversations about commitment and entrenchment. And uh, if you are entrenched, how can we enhance your satisfaction here? You know, assuming you're, you're a good employee, you know, are there other things that we can get you involved in, whether it's some campus-wide committees or uh, support you for professional association leadership? Um, but really taking a conscientious and a developmental approach to supervision, fostering career identity and planning, resilience. Uh, I absolutely echo what Mamta says about uh, being one of those people who will uh, cheer people on, but also give them some honest and sometimes difficult feedback uh, when that's necessary. Uh, I think really coaching for professional development. Um, and I think also, big picture, really ensuring that career advancement uh, is neither dependent on moving out of the institution or staying in it. That, that there's a flexibility and that there really are opportunities across the board. So sometimes really the only possibility for promotion is to move to another institution. And I think doing everything you can to support an employee in that, I think absolutely it, it's beneficial for our profession to keep those people in the profession versus losing them because there just aren't, aren't good opportunities here. So I think that there's a lot of those big picture sorts of things that, that SSAOs can do to really nurture uh, mid-levels. Um, and I think, you know, to be one of the voices that uh, doesn't promote an idea that there's something the matter with somebody who doesn't aspire to a senior student affairs position. I think yeah. to add on to that would be for SSAOs to understand that as a mid-level, there's more to us as well in the sense of our hobbies and our 
home life and giving that that personal touch. The candidness is very well, and that's what we look for. But also realizing that hum holistic view of a professional, whether they're they're sitting on um, a community board, how does that? help the institution as a large and can there be time that's given for that or if they're in a community choir or they're mm -hmm. in some type of a um, habit, habit, uh, uh, habitat for humanity or something in that to give that gives back in the community as well that links back to the institution. So mid-levels are like onions they have layers right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of layers. <laughs> So I, you've all alluded to to the fact that when when it comes down to it, you know, often the senior level folks are are setting the vision, but it's the mid level folks who have to make things happen and and manage the change, uh, and it, and it seems like it's getting harder and harder to do because things are moving so fast. It's hard to keep up with the literature and the current events. Uh, and our, our institutions are, are demanding more and more. What does it mean, this is for anyone, what does it mean to be an effective leader and model of change? So when I think about um, leadership uh, and uh, again modeling, you know, being open to change so to speak, uh, I think um, Again, because I believe so strongly in the health and well-being and joy and flourishing of mid-level professionals, it's not that they have to get things done. We are lucky that mid-level professionals um, advance the mission of our work. Um, that is a gift. And so first, acknowledging the gift of, of that kind of work I think is critical. Um, and uh, for me, like one of the things that I have to remind myself in this privileged identity is that I need to always be in a space where I'm learning from that wisdom and taking ownership if that, that my perspective um, might miss that lived reality that, that our colleagues at the mid-level might be trying to share and you know I might not be listening or may not be as open as I need to. So I think about, um, I mean, mid-level, this is the heartbeat, right? And so if we're not listening and monitoring the heartbeat, um, we, that, that's a duty of care that we have. Um, I also think there's a difference between being, so when we are, many of us are in this field because we're passionate about what we do. Um, I, I will assume that, if that's okay. Um, but passion, uh, we, we associate passion with attachment. So I'm passionate about my work, therefore I'm attached to it, therefore it has to be done, done a certain way. Um, I would offer, instead of attachment, um, the notion of detachment, right? Uh, so when you're detached from your work, it's not that you're less passionate about it, but that, you know, it's kind of that notion of if you love something, set it free, right? And so the, the, how do we approach this with the passion that is so committed that we are able to be detached so that we can, we can be liberated in how we advance the mission? And so leading from a place of liberation rather than containment is um, guidance that I would offer to anyone across the continuum of how we serve um, at our institutions. I just think it becomes more critical for mid-level professionals because, again, I feel like the greatest delivery of mission happens at this level, and so um, how their wisdom is leveraged um, is critical. And so I would offer the notion of being serving in a detached way rather than uh, an attached, kind of contained way. 
I think for me, for a model of change would be is having that drive to do the best that you can and and with the resources that are available to you and being able to to give back to whatever way is needed as a mid-level. Um, being that effective leader is truly just progressing, understanding who you are and what you're giving back. Every Everyone's human and mistakes do occur and so being able to show as a leader how to move forward will then give uh, other people the opportunity to look up to that leader and say okay well this is where they've gone through or they've been able to handle this situation one way or the other. But giving, but having that drive, that passion, I think that's where where I feel the most change can occur either in a person's life or at their institution or in their community in that way. Um, Monta, you were selected to be on the faculty for ACPA's Mid-Level Managers Institute last year, and I think you've re-upped again to help out this year. Mm -hmm. uh, can you describe that experience for our viewers? Oh my gosh, um, we don't have enough time for me to describe that experience. Um, um, the, so the Mid-Level Managers Institute for ACPA was such a restorative and profound experience for me. Um, and while I was certainly part of the collective as a faculty member, it was a, just a profound learning community for all of us. I loved how I was challenged. I loved the community that, that um, frankly, the participants co-created. You know, we had, certainly there's a curriculum there. But what I really appreciated about the curriculum is, again, it centered the agency of the participant, right? And so uh, my agency of my experience and where am I struggling with, where do I have agency around supervision? Where do I have agency around um, negotiating my relationship with my supervisor? Where do I have agency around this changing landscape or demographics? But at the end of the day, the professional was the center of the conversation, not you need to advance as the center of the conversation, not um, here's your deficit lens around XYZ functional area topic. It was we are all learners together, we're in community together. Now again, um, for any curriculum like this, there's going to be you know, curriculum and content um, related to that, but I, I feel like the agency of the participants as well as the human experience um, was upheld. That, now again, I'll take ownership, that was my experience. I, I honestly say it is probably the most profound um, educational experience. There are two, there's three higher ed experiences that I've had and this is in, so in my top three of experiences that I had. I, I'm so thankful that I had a chance to experience it this past year. Um, quite honestly, I wish I had done this within the first, you know, five to seven years of being in the field. It really would have helped me think about my career differently um, and think about not my relationships differently. Um, and um, how I can lead and serve with authenticity differently. So I am deeply grateful, and I'm deeply um, grateful for the legacy of this institute um, because there's a strong legacy of it. Now we're tweeting out the, the link to that institute. Where is it located this year? Um, it is in Dallas, Texas, in January. Very good. So we're, we're nearing the end of our time here. I, I want to finish up with one final uh, question for each of you and ask you to share one action that you hope people will take after watching today's episode. Uh, let's start with you, Nikki. Uh, thanks, Tony. Um, 
So one of the things as mid-levels, we have connections throughout the nation and being able to use those connections to better advance for it. For example, if I can add a shameless plug, tomorrow at 11, we're doing a webinar through um, a collaboration through Mid-Level Community of Practice and the Pan-African Network about the discussions of what's ha what happened this summer of 16 and how do we get faculty, staff, and students in the mindset of getting back to the academia. This just came up when a group of mid-levels just were sitting around and talking about this situation and we're like, let's put a webinar and get people to talk about this. So use the use resources that you have in being able to not only advance your own skills, but the advance of the profession itself. And that can lead to much more collaborations, professional development, and open those doors for those positions that we're looking for or may, may uh, enhance our own skills. I just want to mention, in, in researching for the show, I, I discovered you actually have a Facebook group for mid-level professionals, right? Yes, we do have a Facebook group as well. And uh, we have a Twitter account, and it's all uh, ACPA's Mid-Level Community of Practice, MLCOP. Okay. Uh, Maureen, let's go to you. What, what's the one action you hope people will take, other than going back and, and reading your JCSD article? Right. Well, in July, hopefully we yeah. found the link for it. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Uh, for for mid-levels themselves, I really hope that they'll examine some of those concepts that that we've talked about today and that we talk about in the article, um, but then really uh, learn to advocate for themselves and their need and what they need in terms of career contentment and, and commitment in or out of the field, in I hope, but out if, if you really find out that this isn't, this isn't your thing. Um, and, and for supervisors of mid-levels, I really hope that they'll work intentionally with their supervisees to enhance their development uh, and their investment in the, in the field. Great. Mamta? Um, well, I have a lot of gratitude towards mid-level professionals, so <laughs> you know, certainly I want to um, invoke that. Um, the, the, the piece that I would say is trust your wisdom. Right. I mean, I don't need, need to invoke Dr. Seuss, but there's no one more youer than you, right? And so how does your wisdom contribute to the learning experience of students in a way that nobody else can, right? We are the nexus of generations of wisdom, each one of us. And so we bring something that is unique. And so then how do we situate ourselves um, within our communities to share and offer that wisdom um, in a way that, that uplifts ourselves and each other? Um, so really, I think sometimes we feel like we have to prove ourselves, and I would say <clears throat> take that away and offer trust. Let's trust ourselves um, and lead from that space of trust and upliftment. Um, and I think that that liberates space and consciousness for others to do the same. So I, to me, that's part of the culture shift because, again, I, I would offer that I think our mid-level professionals are the carriers and containers of culture, and so when we do that meaningful work on ourselves, it automatically shifts the culture, which which then becomes a really profound thing for our students. Fantastic. Well, well thank you, all of you, for, for sharing such great inspiration, wisdom, and, and strategies today. Uh, thanks also to our sponsors, M. Stoner and ACPA, for, for supporting these dialogues. Heather will be back next month for an episode on September 14th called Unintended Impact, How White People Respond When We Mess Up. Then, a, a, week, a week later, 
I'll be back on September 21st with a panel of guests to discuss how we can best engage in conversations about controversial topics with our students on campus. Certainly with the rhetoric heating up around the current election, there'll be lots to discuss uh, on how we can have those conversations and dialogues with our students. You can receive reminders about this and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also browse the archives at higheredlive.com. I'm Tony Duty. Thanks for watching, everyone. I hope you make it a great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care.